Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest on today's episode of Mike's Search for Meaning is Ross Shinnick. You can connect with Ross at his website, rossshinnick.com, and his LinkedIn page is where he's most active, which is his name, Ross Shinnick. Additionally, I always donate to and raise awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice. And Ross said that he's going to punt it over to me and say it's my choice. So I have selected the Enneagram Prison Project. One of my former guests, episode 90, Susan Olesic, is an incredible human. She founded the Enneagram Prison Project to teach the Enneagram, which is a personality typecasting, to folks who are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated. And it's really profoundly healing and transformational work that she does. You should definitely check out the episode and please join me in donating. It's linked in the show notes, the Enneagram Prison Project, as well as Ross's LinkedIn page and his website. Ross was an incredible guest to have on my show. He is what I would characterize as a conscious leader, someone who is really actively taking responsibility for how he shows up in his life and in the world. He's introspective. He gets amazing results at his job. And he's consistently evaluating what success means to him, how to be resilient, how to fail forward, and how to build systems in place for his team. He works at Indeed and has a very senior role at Indeed and ascended the ranks pretty quickly there for really good reason, as you'll find out in the conversation. He's really passionate about culture and and what creates really strong cultures. And it's so applicable in the workplace to understand these things. One of the things that I learned from this conversation is that vulnerability is one of the hallmark qualities that is consistent among all of the great cultures as far as workplaces or organizations in the world. Feeling safe being who we are is so important. And the funny thing is that In a lot of work cultures now, vulnerability is not really welcome and productivity is what's encouraged and profit. And what the funny thing is, is that when we feel safe being who we are, when we can be vulnerable, when we can really fully show up and not compartmentalize, it actually enhances profit and productivity. And so Ross walks, lives and breathes this work. He embodies this work. I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. And with all that said, settle in. Take a deep breath and enjoy this conversation with Ross Shinnick. Mr. Shinnick, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning, my friend. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about the many things, especially leadership. And I always love to understand where people come from and what you were like as a child. I think that's a really interesting place to start these conversations. And so... The first question I ask in pretty much every interview is, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Wow. Well, my dinner table was amazing. I had, so I'm the oldest. It was a family of five. I'm the oldest of three. I have two younger brothers. Their names are Drew and Zach. 
And I think my parents were very particular about creating the right conditions at dinner. We didn't have a TV. We made sure to have good, productive conversations about our day. And if we weren't in a good mood, they would always challenge us. And I think that sets a really good tone. And maybe that's where I started feeling some need to be a leader in my life. I mean, there were a few areas where that came into play, but as the oldest of three, I always felt the need to lead by example. So uh, oftentimes I was trying to set the tone for what good behavior looked like at the dinner table and also felt the need to sort of assist with my parents and their parenting journey and just help them in any way they could, because I somehow recognized at a young age that parenting is really difficult, that these mm -hmm. are just two human beings that just decided to wing it and take care of these other people for the rest of their lives. And I mean, no one has the rule book for good parenting. And there's some things that you're just going to do well. And there's some areas you're going to make mistakes, but ultimately you just have to sort of figure things out. And anyway, that's how I looked at it, even as a, even as a kid. And so definitely felt the need to create the right example for, for my family and, and for my brothers. Hmm. That's a good insight that you have, man, about parenting. I, I laugh in recognition because as we were just talking about, I have a one month old and taking that leap is no joke. There, there isn't a rule book for parenting and that's for sure. I, I have a newfound appreciation for parents and, and my parents. It's, it's a really tough job and it's really neat to hear that you were able to recognize that even from a young age. <laughs> and I'm a fellow oldest child as well. So it's interesting. I, I never really thought about that in terms of leadership that I have a younger sister and that my younger sister always looked up to me. But I think another thing that really resonates about your story, at least as far as I know about your story, is that you were maybe reserved. I don't know if, if that's the word that you use, but you've said shy and introverted, which I shared as a younger child. And I'm wondering what that was like for you in terms of someone who's interested in leadership. And I know I didn't feel like I was capable of being a good leader because I was shy and introverted. So what was it like to kind of hold the tension of those things? Yeah. Well, first, I, I want to give a shout out to you. Congratulations on becoming a father. And you mentioned you had a one month old and that's incredible and obviously good timing. And if, if I may, I'd love to just ask you, how are you doing just in these first 30 days and how are things going? Oh, my God. Yeah, man. Well, I'll, I'll share one of the ways I look at leadership is, well, how am I doing? I'll, I'll take off the like podcast host and, and frame this around leadership. Parenting's hard. I've been having a really hard time with it. There's been really beautiful and sweet moments and times where I'll sing a song to my son and it'll calm him down. He's hysterically crying and I'll sing a song to him and he calms down and it's just this incredibly bonding moment, even though he might not be able to recognize who I am. There's been lots of moments like that where it's so sweet that I just break out into tears. And there have been on the opposite ends of the spectrum moments where I want to break out into tears because it's just so hard to wake up at 11 p.m. and feed him and then realize that he's still not going to go back down. So I have to spend another hour with him and then he wakes up again in two hours and it's 2.30 a.m., and the sleep deprivation obviously makes it really hard to be present and to not lose my patience. And so things like patience and grace are qualities that I'm really working on practicing right now. 
that translates in a lot of areas in my life. And uh, I'm realizing how high I demand out of myself and the expectations I have of other people and how little of grace I give other people without knowing anything. Like, for example, in a work setting, sometimes if someone's being really short with me, I want to... I want to have the grace to say that person might be going through a lot right now. Cause right now I'm going through a lot. I'm sure that I'm showing up a certain way at work. And anyway, having that kind of understanding, empathy and patience and grace, those are things that are really top of mind for me too. And just being able to sink into the fact that sometimes life doesn't go super smoothly. I'm really good at having routines, morning routines and getting my ducks in a row. And parenthood is, has shown me, among a million other things, that life doesn't always work that way. There's going to be a million unexpected curveballs. I know that in your role as a sales director, you you know that there's a million curveballs. You can't plan for everything. And I think just parenting has taught me that in spades. It's just coming at me a mile a minute right now. Hmm. That's fascinating. Well, there, there's two things. And then we can get to your question. I'm, I'm sorry to derail it. It's amazing. I love it. So okay. but go ahead. Cool. Well, there's two points I want to make about parenting that I would just love your take on mm-hmm. as somebody who isn't one. Um, the first one is I was listening to a podcast that talked about transformative experiences, which is this concept where certain things that you go through in life actually ch- fundamentally change who you are. And in some cases, very much change the self and how that can be defined. And parenting is very much one of those because before you're a parent, all you can ever prioritize is you. And the number one most important thing in the world is the fulfillment, well-being, happiness, and protection of yourself. And you can't even conceptualize what, how that can change until you become a parent, where all of those things around well-being and shelter, protection, and happiness shifts from the self to this other individual. And again, before that happens, you just cannot imagine what that could possibly look like and feel like. And now suddenly everything has changed and the focus doesn't become you. I'm just curious if that resonates with you at all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it resonates a lot. There's so there's a lot that I could share about that. That's still something I'm really having a tough time letting go of. So I think first of all, I'm going to do a solo episode, plug for myself. I'm going to do a solo episode about parenting and my journey so far next week. So that'll probably be the next episode after this one is released, where I I will share full download of all of my thoughts on this. But one of the things, I, I don't know if your question was pointing to this, but there has definitely been a grief of the life that was beforehand. And it's a multifaceted grief, grief of the autonomy that I had in my life and how I could be so self-absorbed and not in a bad way, in a way that I was just focused on the self, like you were pointing to. There's grief around the relationship that was before my partner and I were just husband and wife, and now now we're parents. So there's been a loss of freedom there and a different type of intimacy so far in the first month where when it's just me and her, it's a, it's a totally different experience. Yeah. So there's, there is, I, I think as, as a transformative experience, like you pointed to happens like parenting, it doesn't have to be parenting, but in my life right now it is. Sometimes there is a loss and a grief that happens because of how transformative the experience is. And in a lot of ways, I'm still going through that, even with mundane, simple things like I want to have my cup of coffee without a baby screaming in my face 
two minutes later. There's there's lots of day-to-day moments that are really pushing me to my edge around, Mike, your life isn't just yours anymore. You can't only think about yourself. Your life is now much bigger than that. You are you're raising this little helpless, sweet newborn baby. And there's that that has been an incredibly transformative experience, full of many other things different than loss too. I mean, like I pointed to, there's a lot of sweetness in there and, and love. But what was what was the other thought that you wanted yeah. to pick my brain on here? Yeah. Well, thanks for the insight on that. The second one is in psychology, there's the concept that we judge people based on their behavior and we judge ourselves based on our intentions. And mm. I think when people become parents, what I would assume is that when you become a parent, that becomes more pronounced, right? Because you have this entire world if you're going into the office or you're going to deliver a package or you're going to a restaurant, you have this entirely different world back home where you have to take care of this other human being. And that takes away from your time. It takes away from your ability to have energy and do the things that you want. And so the way that you show up is just going to fundamentally change. And in some cases, maybe in your work environment or elsewhere, you're not as present, or you're not as able to be as empathetic, or you're not as able to be as good of an active listener, just so much of your energy and efforts are allocated elsewhere. Uh, and as a parent, what you recognize is, well, it's not, I'm not trying to be less good at those things. It's just that I'm incapable of it right now. And my intentions are good. I'm just curious if that psychological concept has resonated more as a parent yeah, well, that's that's exactly where the grace comes in, right? It's the the expectations that I had of myself pre-parenthood are just, they're not quite as possible right now. I don't have the energy. I don't have the time that I did beforehand. I think there's also a level of, so when I hear intention versus behavior, my intention, when when my son was born, I had this intention that I was, every time he cried, I was going to gracefully pick him up and be there and nurture him. And of course, reality is much different than that. Sometimes I am really pissed off and really angry. And having a child has actually brought up some of a lot of my stuff, not some of my stuff, a lot of my stuff, my my impatience, my anger, not in a way that I ever, you know, that's a threat. I, I feel it's important to say that, but that I, I didn't realize I had access to this anger over the loss of control that I have in my life. And for example, this this bed that I have right behind me where I sleep every night has also now double served as my punching bag and my yelling bag when things feel really chaotic and out of control, when I just need two, three, five minutes to move all that energy through me. There's something about a crying baby that just brings up a lot of pain in me. And one of my reactions to pain to block it off is to have anger and to try and make it stop. And so when all that energy is moving through me, I think it's important to have an outlet like screaming into a pillow, punching the pillow. And my intention before was to, I don't know, I'm going to do air quotes, but do parenting as perfect as possible, which I know is a an impossible expectation. But that's a lot of ways, in, in a lot of ways, that's how I've oriented my life is I'm going to do this the best I can. I'm going to try and avoid making mistakes. Parenthood has kind of completely blown all of that up because it's it's just not possible for me to be like that. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think this whole thing really speaks to the paradox of finding fulfillment in life because like when, when putting yourself in different environments, 
allows you to see yourself from different perspectives, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, now that you're a parent and you're, you're presented and confronted with these challenges, you know, you only knew how you were going to react to these situations because you're in them, right? Like you couldn't have predicted that this was going to, your bed was going to turn into a punching bag or you were going to feel grief or any of these things. And so, but you need these unique experiences to have a better understanding of who you are. It's like you, you, someone's like, you're looking at yourself from different angles of a mirror. Mm-hmm. But it's a paradox because these experiences also change who we are, you know, and we, therefore we have different, as we change, we have different goals and aspirations. And I mean, you just change fundamentally. So it's like the trying new things and putting yourself in unique environments allows you to find yourself, but you're also changing along the way. It's a really interesting paradigm. Well, that's in a lot of ways, that's how I look at development. It's this interesting paradox of you're becoming more of yourself and you're also letting go of a lot of the things that kind of weren't working beforehand, right? So in a lot of ways, development is, I feel like a totally transformed and changed person, but I also feel more of more like the person I've always really, truly, deeply been inside. Mm. And and parenthood's an interesting way to, I, I haven't quite thought about it like this, but parenthood definitely has helped me connect to more of myself, more of all of myself. Call it some shadows of myself that I hadn't been willing to look at. The, the seven-year-old in me who wants to have a temper tantrum and that I've deemed immature and not me, like that's, I, I've had to really just confront that's still in there. I sometimes am totally immature and want to scream into a pillow and there's nothing wrong with that. So it's an interesting insight, man. And I'm, I'm really glad that I, but before we jumped on here, that I, I gave you the invitation to ask me about this type of stuff, because I don't think there is a more interesting playground for leadership than parenthood, which I'm already learning before he can even really move that many muscles in his body. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, like I've asked people who have been in leadership positions and management roles, which so currently I'm a, a senior director of sales for a tech company, indeed. And I've asked people who become parents after becoming managers, has it, was being a manager helpful in this journey? Like, did it help you actually become a better parent? And many of them say yes. And that's interesting. Like, I think one of the big shifts in my own life was when I went from in my work, going from an individual contributor to being a manager. Because as an individual contributor, again, you're still just sort of on your own. I mean, your whole goal with the entire job is to be successful. And the only way, the only person who can stop you from doing that is you. And the only person who can actually get you to the end goal is yourself. And you're going to have people and resources and mentors along the way, but ultimately you're fully accountable and, and you're the only person in the driver's seat. That totally shifts when you become a manager. And that's something that I always tell people who might be interested in management or leadership in a professional setting, which is you have to depend on other people for your success. And you can you can create and initiate the right processes and systems of accountability to ensure that people are doing the right things. But ultimately, it's going to be a, a, up to them to actually do it. And what you tend to find is that you you tend to really understand or comprehend people at a very unique and different level when you become a manager. You really get to see their good side and you get to see their bad side and you get to see things that you just didn't realize you would see. And a lot of things just sort of take you by surprise. And, you know, one of the things I've also just 
come to recognize is that, I mean, people generally want, people generally think they're doing the best that they can do at any given moment, you know? And I think the, the people who are good leaders, whether they have the title or not, have this fundamental assumption or presumption that people are always trying to do the right thing, mainly. Do you believe that? I, that is something that I deeply believe to be true. Like there's there's a quote that is attributed to Einstein, but I, I have the thought or feeling that it's probably not Albert Einstein, but said the, the most important choice that you can make in your life is whether you live in a friendly or hostile universe. And I, I do believe we live in a friendly universe and that people are always doing their best. I try my best to assume positive intent. Is that something that you believe in? Yeah. Well, I think it, it, it checks out evolutionarily because one, you know, we were human beings who were, there were these bigger speed, there were these species bigger than us, scarier than us that could kill us. You know, we were in the jungle as apes and there were, you know, these elephants and lions and things in the Sahara. And that's why tribes became a thing because we had, we we're like, why, well, you know, I can't take on these things by myself. Like, do you want to join my tribe? And we'll, we'll try and take on, here's a stick. And so I think joining a tribe, right. So I think we were incentivized to make decisions for the betterment of a group and to make decisions that would benefit ourselves, one, so we don't get eaten, but two is that we had this recognition that people relied on us in these tribes. And so I, I think that has made its way to modern day where I think people generally want to do things that are best for them. And they generally want to do best for things, the best things for other people. And it gets tricky, like even things that don't seem like they have good intent, even things that are done with bad intentions usually are done because of some insecurity or some underlying reason that is causing that negative intent, right? So if, if somebody, you know, if you have somebody who's just constantly throwing insults your way or saying something negative about you, right? It's, it's oftentimes coming from a place where they don't feel good about themselves, right? And it's, it's not that they don't want to feel good about themselves, right? It's not that they want to be negative in front of you, right? It's that they, they don't have the tools and they're not in the headspace to be capable of that. Right. And it's not to say that we shouldn't place blame and help those those types of people get better. But it is to say that oftentimes if if the conditions were different, that type of person would want to have good intentions and in fact would. Hmm. So I want to backtrack a little bit because I we're already exploring such fun terrain, but I, I think it's really fascinating to understand this this kind of mixture of maybe innately being drawn to certain things, but also the way that you've worked at being the person that you are today. And I know, which is the original question before we got into parenthood, and I'm grateful that we did parenthood, but I want to I wanna parse through a little bit about how you've arrived at where you are today. And I know that you have, with things like public speaking, worked very intentionally on cultivating a growth mindset and saying, I don't have the skill yet, but I know that it's possible to have that skill. Yeah. And as someone who was shy and introverted, there's there's a few curiosities, but I'm I'm curious if that if you felt that you couldn't be quite as good of a leader, which I I think I I don't think that you need actually I know that you don't need to be outgoing and extroverted to be a, an incredible leader. I think that many of the best leaders can be very reserved and introverted. But did that feel limiting to you? And when did you start to take action on? 
having a growth mindset and, and acquiring new skills. It took me a really long time to understand that the way that I was wasn't the way I always had to be. Hmm. Yeah, well, I was always shy. And so I think that was definitely the starting point where I remember saying to my mom when I was seven years old, I'm not going to say hi to somebody in the hallway unless they say hi to me. And actually, I don't remember that. She told me I said that. And yeah, I, so there was something about initiating conversation or speaking my mind or talking out of turn that I think was scary to me for reasons that I, I have not uncovered. I, I think in a lot of ways it's genetics, but I was definitely shy growing up. And then I, in maybe it was like elementary school, my grades were really bad. And that was strange because most people's grades in elementary school are really good. It's elementary school. And so my parents were concerned and they had me take these tests, IQ tests and otherwise outside of, outside of school. And there weren't any, like it wasn't, didn't seem to be an IQ issue or otherwise. And eventually after a couple of years of these tests, what I was diagnosed with was called mixed expressive receptive disorder, a mild version of it, which essentially meant that there is a disconnect between what somebody says and how I interpret the information. And furthermore, there's a disconnect between what I'm trying to convey and what's actually being conveyed to somebody else. And this was a really bad formula for a classroom setting because you have the teacher who's trying to explain something to you and you're understanding it differently. And then when a test comes out, I'm trying to convey my answer and it's coming out differently from what's on the page. So it was like this double whammy. And so my grades were incredibly poor in elementary school and middle school. And I applied for these uh, like learning extensions, these like resource centers that they that they provide oftentimes in public school. And I was I was declined those resources. And so I switched to a private school in high school going into 11th grade. So from that, I, I became really introspective as a result of this. I felt this incredible disconnect between my own intellectual capabilities and how I was actually performing. And all of my good friends, and I went to you know, a pretty good school where people did pretty well for the most part. My friend group was had very good grades and I felt like an outlier because I was with getting bad grades. And this combination of shyness and introspection, I think is what made me introverted. And I, although it is a personality trait, so it's not necessarily environmentally impacted, but the way I see it is I became more introverted as a result of this. And I just had created the space where I really dug deep into who I was and why it is that I'm different from other people and this sense of adversity that I was trying to overcome. And, you know, looking back, it, it doesn't, it didn't, it doesn't feel like it was a huge thing. I mean, I, my grades were poor and I figured it out. And then I ended up going to college and eventually got a job. But I remember in the moment, it, it was really difficult, whether it was depression or anxiety during that time, it was difficult to try and figure out who I was in those moments. Hmm. So it all stemmed from that. And I viewed teachers really as the leaders in my life. And I felt like in some cases they had sort of failed me, even though in, in many instances, it wasn't necessarily their fault, but it felt that way. And that here were these people who could give me guidance and help me be successful, but they weren't able to do that. And I was denied again, the resource center at the school, and it, it didn't feel like people were on my side to help me be successful. And this instilled just a, a very intense feeling of, I just don't want people in my life to feel the way I did. And mm -hmm. 
so my for a while my journey had been figuring out how to build myself up so that I can help create a life and an environment and a space for people to feel like they have the resources to be successful. And that was what, from there, my, my passion for leadership just exploded. I mean, that was really the, the single goal for a while was to become part of an organization where I can work my way up and then have a team of people who I can continue to build up. And from there, I, I felt I would be able to feel fulfilled, which as we could talk about did. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about a lot of things, but what what did you learn about yourself when you when you started to dig with who am I and were there support systems in your life? I just I'm placing myself at when I was 17 or 14 or even when I was 20 in college. It, it just I think that there was there was an appetite in me for that. I I really wanted to discover more about who I was and I felt like an outlier like you did, but I just didn't have the wherewithal to make any profound sort of self-discovery. I wasn't really ready for that until a little bit later in my life. And even when I felt ready, I needed a lot of support in my life. So I'm just, I'm curious about like if we double click on discovery of who I am and what fills me, what did you learn about yourself in those moments? Yeah. Well, my big hero is my mom because she is, the person who was deeply interested and and concerned, but interested in, in helping me really find myself. And so she, first of all, went to bat for me from an educational standpoint with moving me to a private school. You know, I have all these memories of us, you know, driving around, checking out different private schools, and I would be there for the day and meet the kids. And so she was kind of just very focused on making sure that I had what I needed. She was the one who took me to several psychologists and psychiatrists who would conduct these exams to run these assessments on things around personality and possible disorders and any sort of disconnect that I was feeling. But lastly, she's also a therapist. So she was a psychology major and and became a licensed clinical social worker. So she's deeply interested in, in the human mind and behavioralism, why people act the way they do and connecting the dots between looking at somebody's behavior and then the personality traits and the underpinnings of, of why it is that they're making those decisions. And so I think a lot of my interest in intrigue and introspection came one, because she is like that, but two, because she's interested in that and, uh, and pushed me to be in, engaged in that type of thought. So shout out to her. That's a big part of it. What I learned about myself back then, I mean, I, I think the biggest was just that I am somebody who's introspective. And mm-hmm. it, it took me a while to recognize that not everybody was thinking in the way that I do. And one of the exercises I would do was just write a lot. And I would write down my thoughts and feelings and things I was insecure about or goals that I had or things that were on my mind. And so I got into writing really early. And none of my friends were doing any of those things, right? They were more focused on other things and and their own goals, but they don't, I don't think they had that level of introspection that I had. And I think also what it allowed me to do was to be able to communicate some of these high level thoughts and have really good conversations and dialogue about like, why are we the way we are? Why do we act the way we act? And, you know, what, what are some of the reasons that people say the things that they do? So just by looking at myself, and then I think I can oftentimes generalize that to other people. And sometimes I'm wrong, but a lot of times there's some good models you can use to kind of understand why people are doing things. Mm. Well, just a, a reflection 
that I have about this, because it, it seems really common that when someone's confronted with a challenge or a learning disability, that a lot of times it becomes in, in some way a gift. And, and maybe it's just the fact that you confronted a challenge in the first place, but it, it seems like not only did you confront the challenge, but you actually, in a way, made it your strength. Like you, you've turned it into empathy and understanding of, of different people and the way that we're all wired a little bit differently. And I, I think it's really fascinating that there, from a young age, there seems to be a yearning to be normal, air quotes again, to kind of be like the rest of the crowd, but actually a distinguishing factor of, hey, I'm, I'm not really strong student. And that actually has some advantage. I can't see it right now, but there's some advantage to this. It seems like it's actually turned into an advantage in your life. It seems really common in entrepreneurship. Like in the beginning of my personal development journey, I listened to a lot of entrepreneurs who were dyslexic or in some way really had a hard time at school. I know this is true for Gary Vee. And you could have, we could have a whole separate conversation about what success even means. But a lot of, a lot of folks are able to turn the thing that's a challenge and make it a gift. And I'm curious in this conversation, I can already sense how good of a listener you are. There's, there's ways, these little things that are happening, like you're mirroring back what I'm saying with the exact words that I used. You're very present. I'm wondering, and I know that you've, I've alluded to this, that you've built skills in public speaking. You're very eloquent, very articulate. What are a couple of ways that you actively built these skills that it seems like weren't inherently innately present for you when you were younger? Well, thanks for the compliments that, yeah, it mean, means the world that you recognize that and, and would say that. So thank you for that. Of course. Well, backing up a little bit, I, I think that's just the best approach to take when it comes to challenges, right? Because you, I mean, everyone has challenges and, and their own perceptions of their challenges, right? So, you know, I have these sets of challenges, but somebody else has a, a separate set. So I think a lot of times we have the wrong mindset around this, where people just want the problem to go away. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that is like, that's the mainstream opinion of problems is once, once I, once I get past this problem that I have in my life, then I'll be good to go. Right. Until of course the next problem comes around <laughs> and they're like, all right, well, it's just, you know, it's just three more weeks until this really stressful presentation, you know, now in, in late, late October after this presentation, then I'll be coasting. It's like, okay, well then something else comes around you're like, you know, you get sick and you're like, okay, well, you know, once I get over this flu, then, then I'll be good to go. It's like, the problem is now it's been 40 years of you saying that. Right. So mm -hmm. I think what's important for people to stop and to recognize is that it isn't the fact that problems exist. It is your own perception of, of those problems. And almost all problems can be used to equip yourself to improve moving forward. And there's some outliers towards the end of the spectrum where things are very high suffering and unfortunately have disastrous effects on people's lives. So I'm not, not referring to those, but really ever anything before the high impact ones, usually your problems can help. You can turn those into things to help improve yourself. And, you know, a lot of times too, it has a lot to do with your own, your own feelings of competence towards those problems. So a lot of times the reasons that problems can be magnified is because you have this feeling that you can't do it. And the fear of failure can be scary for people. The feeling of not good and not being good enough can be scary for people. 
And also oftentimes there can be the incorrect, like I, I think these suboptimal ways of dealing with the problem. So, and these are twofold. One is a lot of times people will generalize problems towards other facets of their life. So they'll say to themselves, well, I bombed this presentation. I, I guess I must not be good at anything, mm -hmm. right? Or, you know, my, my baby's been crying all day. I can't get my baby to stop crying. I'm, I'm a terrible father. And, you know, I, I must be a terrible, you know, husband and I must be a terrible friend and son. And right. So that you take this one problem and now everything else in your life that you had some inkling of maybe not being great at now, suddenly all of those things go out the window. So for all of those reasons, it is so important to be mindful of what are the challenges in your life? How can you look at those? How can you improve, improve upon those? And how can you forgive yourself if you're not addressing and completing and being successful in those areas to the extent that you want to be? Hmm. And so for me, the insecurity around being shy or introverted or not feeling like I'm as smart as other people I was able to overcome that just by working on myself, whether it was exercising more, whether it was reading more, writing more, and talking to more people. You know, I felt like I became really social when I got into college. I joined Greek life. I joined lots of different clubs. And then when I graduated college, I went into a sales profession where, in case people didn't know, right, it's, there's a lot of talking there. And there's, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, in my case, we were making 60 to 80 calls a day to complete strangers in an attempt to persuade them to give us money in exchange for value and time. And that is only going to continue to build that strength. That's only going to continue to build myself. And because of the fact that I was insecure about it, I wanted to improve in that area. And, you know, I think that all ties back to growth mindset, right? Which is this idea that you, you think you can get better in those areas, right? Just the fact that you think that you can improve in some of the areas that you're not great at or insecure about will actually change the outcome as to whether or not you get better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, one of the things I'm hearing here is that a lot of times barring, you know, the, the crazy circumstances, but in, in most everyday scenarios, the story we tell ourselves is, is probably the most important part about the challenge. And I, I was laughing a lot in recognition because in, in early parenthood, that has been a big challenge for me is not is is avoiding the mindset of I just need to get through this and then everything's going to be okay. But that's been a recurring thing in a lot of my life until I really got more intentional about having a growth mindset and doing my own work. The whole I just need to get through this presentation, or if I only had this skill, everything would be great. Or if I only had this amount of money, everything would be great. And another amazing thing that you're pointing to, it's one of the through lines of my podcast and, and one of the things that really lights me up about human behavior, I don't know exactly what the split is between what you're born with and what you can, what skills you can acquire and how your environment impacts you. But one thing I know for certain is that fill in the blank, leadership, public speaking, sales, listening, they're all skills that can be acquired. They're all very learnable and with intentional practice, everyone can get at least competent, if not really good at a lot of these things. So I'm curious if that is an attitude that as you foster growth mindset and inspire others on, on your team, I imagine you're leading a lot of people. Like, how do you, how do you help people foster that type of attitude so that it's not, I'm making 60, 80 calls, I'm probably failing on a large chunk of them. How do you help people kind of have the mindset of, 
that's okay. It doesn't actually say I'm, I'm a bad person. I'm a bad husband. I'm a bad fill in the blank that it's just something that happens. And this is the right challenge that I need to learn and grow that type of thing. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's a, a ton to say on this, but I'll, I'll start by saying that the, you have to get good at reframing failure for people. And oftentimes failure is seen as a bad thing. And I, I think we're well up to date on this by now, right? Failure is a good thing. And that's how you become successful. But I think what people, the nuance that I think is important here is that you can't, failure is the catalyst to being successful, right? You you can't know how to be successful without first making mistakes along the way. And oftentimes what holds people back from being successful is their fear of failure. And it's not like this is a little, it's not like this approach to it is a little wrong. It's it's the exact opposite of right, right? Because you 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 can't be successful if you're not understanding your failures, but then you're you're afraid to fail, right? So you're just you just you're just going to be spinning your tires at the starting line for the entirety of your professional career. So oftentimes, what I say is, you know, a lot of times, and this is particular to managers who are trying to increase activity and productivity. Uh, oftentimes, their talk track will be something like, "Well, you have to do more so that you can get more yeses." right? You can get more people who are going to agree to work with you and speak with you. So you have to do more and reach out more, but it's the opposite, right? You need to reach out to more people so that more people say no, Mm. so that you can learn why they said no. So that next time you reach out to somebody, you can do things differently. So they say yes. And that little piece is oftentimes missed, I think, in the communication between leadership. And it sounds like we're talking about professional settings now between leadership and the employees. And I think second thing is it's important to create a link between the work that employees are doing every day and the skills that those are developing that will yield good results in the long run. So recognizing that what you're doing day to day is not confined to the work that you're doing day to day. So the obvious example for me is going to be sales. Yes, you, let's say, so back in, you know, 2017, I was, in sales on on the floor and I was making 80 calls a day. Yes, I want to make 80 calls a day so I can get people on the phone and and get more sales. But calling 80 people a day also ensures that you get better at failure and it allows you to be more resilient and it allows you to become more persuasive because you're getting creative with different talk tracks and ways of communicating. It also allows you to become more of a chameleon because you're calling people of different sexes and ethnicities and and backgrounds and personality types and geographic locations and cultural differences, you're getting a different idea of how different people communicate, right? So you can become more of a chameleon and you can match their style better. All of those are skills that are applicable when you leave the office. And all of those skills are applicable when you move on to your next job. And good leaders are connecting the dots between the work that the employees are doing every day and the imp- the implications of those skills in the long run and in their next job. And everybody wants to be successful in their professional career, right? You want to be financially free. You want to be able to support people, your family and friends financially. You want to be able to get to a place where you have the time to do the things that you want in your life. And you want people to look up to you and be inspired by you. And you want to have influence that has a positive impact on the people around you and on society. Usually people will agree that that in an ideal world, those are things that they that they have. 
And so managers should be incentivized to help employees understand that the work that they're doing here will help them get to the next role. And if the employee doesn't feel that way, then it's possible they're not in the right role, in which case the leader's job is to help them understand what it is that they want out of a job. But what the key difference here is just to to maybe tie a bow on this is good, decent to good leaders are good at helping employees do the job well, but great to excellent leaders help employees do the job well and set themselves up for future jobs by ensuring that they're developing a skill set that will make them good once they move. Mm-hmm. And put another way, I, I've, I've heard before that good leaders are really good at getting the results and and helping other people get results and and great leaders empower other great leaders right it's that you are in in a lot of ways creating other leaders people who don't need to be watched over who develop their own autonomy own way of doing things but man there's so many directions that we can go ross i think i, I think psychological safety is such an important underpinning of what fosters really healthy development. And a lot of times what what allows someone's risk appetite and fear of failure appetite to be enhanced or increased is knowing that there's some sense of psychological safety. And this is something that you put down as a topic that matters to you. It's someone it's something that's very important to me. So, what are some ways that you look at safety when when you know, b- building a relationship with employees or even even outside of the professional workplace, just what are what are some ways that you look at establishing safety? Because I think safety is is a lot of times what underpins flourishing and success. Yeah. Well, first, just to define it in my own terms, to me, psychological safety is cultivating an atmosphere where people feel like they can be themselves and bring up concerns if they have them. So just just to set that there. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to it. I think first I want to touch on why sometimes people don't do it, which is that people who don't cultivate psychological safety, I think have the perception that it can cause people to slack off or be lazy or not. It won't yield as much productivity as they want. It's like, well, if my employees feel safe, then won't they feel safe not getting all the work done? And you know, the opposite is true. And we'll touch on that. But that's, I think, the initial perception. The reality is, Psychological safety ensures that people can come to you if there are questions or concerns and that they can be their authentic self. And that that just branches out into a million different topics. So one is it ensures better collaboration. Those employees are going to be working with other employees more. You want to you want to create a space where people feel like they can share their thoughts and ideas. And that's the it's only possible if there's safety. Like if you're if, if you've ever been on, like if you're listening to this and you're currently on a team where, I mean, just ask yourself, like, could you could you bring up an idea to your team or your boss, just something that could work or just something you've noticed could help make the team better? Would you feel comfortable doing that? And if the answer is yes, there probably is psychological safety there. And if the answer is no, there probably isn't. And, you know, I learned about psychological safety from my first boss, this guy, Mike, Michael, and he was my sales director in New York. And anytime I brought up an idea to him, he would bring it in front of the team and he would have me present it and go through all these ideas. And sometimes he wouldn't even spot check it. He would just have me like speak to these things because he trusted that I could bring good ideas to the team. And, you know, he did that for other people on the team as well, but it allowed me to be my true self and 
it gave me approval that you are allowed to challenge the process and you are allowed to think of unique and new ideas that you think could help us get to the end goal more effectively or more efficiently. And I knew from that point on that I wanted to be able to cultivate psychological safety. The other misconception about safety that I think is worth noting is sometimes leaders have the perception that it's all positive vibes. Like safety is all about like, hey, you can succeed, you can fail, but it's all good over here. That's not psychological safety. In fact, a lot of times good leaders who cultivate psychological safety are really hard on their people. And there's a really good quote around someone, uh, it's, it was the coach of the San Antonio Spurs who was known for leading an exceptional basketball team who would say to his, who would say to the basketball players, I have high expectations for you and I know that you can achieve them. And to me, that summarizes psychological safety so perfectly, which is that, look, I'm, I'm, it's going to be challenging. And if there's something that you're not doing the right way, I'm going to call you out on it. And I'm always here to support you and give you the right resources that you need to succeed. But I will hold you accountable to the right things. And success in this role means that you are doing X, Y, Z things and you are able to achieve these goals. And it's in your best interest to do well at this job. And if there's any time where you're going down a path where it's it's going to lead to anything but success, you're going to hear from me about it. And it's this feeling that this person has got you and this person is genuinely here for the team and isn't afraid to give the right feedback when it's necessary. So that to me is the, the second piece of the misconception around it. It's not, you know, everybody out in a field holding hands, talking about how great, <laughs> right, doing team bonding activities. It It can be tough. It can be tough, but the team feels challenged in all the right ways and they want to be there. And so, you know, one of the ways that I, I mean, there's a couple of ways that I cultivate it just to tie this, tie the bow on this, but like one of the main ones is, is active listening, as you've talked about that, like, even if somebody is saying something that doesn't make sense or isn't the right way, I'm, I'm going to hear you in full and I'm going to ask you questions to help you better understand if your idea is going to be useful or not. And then the second one is just a good balance between positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. So the positive reinforcement being really specific about the compliment or the reinforcement that you're giving. So not just good job on this project, but particularly saying, hey, when you gave this presentation, one thing I really liked was how on slide three, you really slowed down and you gave emphasis on the really important parts. And I think when you did that, the audience and the employees really started to pay a lot more attention and that's something that I think you should continue to do because you do a really good job of that. And it's just that the specificity of it is usually the game changer for people in understanding what they're doing well. So anyway, I could, I could go on about this for another three hours, but let's stop there. Yeah. Well, there's uh, I'm, I'm noticing the uh, the desire in me to, to use to put into practice what you just said. And I, I was thinking. You know, Ross, I, I really appreciated when about six minutes into this conversation, you asked me about parenting and how that ties to leadership and how you really set the tea for or set the table for a really wonderful conversation to emerge. I, I really appreciated that about you. So I'm sitting with the specificity of, of positive reinforcement there. I'm also I'm also sitting with how I don't know if you look at self-love or compassion as as topics of interest to you, but they've been really top of mind for me. And there's a similar misconception about each of these that they are squishy and holding hands in the fields, like you said. And a lot of times self-love is actually just 
allowing, paradoxically, it's allowing the dark parts of you to be there and saying, that's okay too. And that's what I'm hearing with psychological safety is it's not just rah-rah, everything's good. We avoid having the hard conversations. It's quite the opposite. It's actually from a place of love, from a place of positive intent, I'm going to share the thoughts, feelings, reactions that I have. But what underpins that is that this is this is a space of of love, really. It doesn't have to you you don't have to use that word if that sounds too squishy, but it's I want the absolute best for you and I want you to succeed. And here's how I'm seeing it. So there, it's not avoiding hard conversations, it's actually just creating space for the hard conversation to happen without it being criticism, blame, contempt, criticism, like things like that. So from here, there's a couple of other things that I'm really drawn to about your story. And I I know that you've had a mindfulness practice. This is another thing, meditation, mindfulness that I think gets, I don't know, misunderstood for sure, that meditation is simply go into a cave or go into a quiet area, feet crossed on a chair. It's all positive thoughts. Everything's peaceful. That has not been the case for my mindfulness practice, but I know that you've been really actively using that to better yourself. And I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about your mindfulness practice. Yeah, thanks. Well, just to close one loop on the self-love piece, because just, yeah, it was such a good topic. It is, it is love. Like the end state of leading a strong team is love. And there's many reasons for that, but I just want to touch on one, which is like what, like your regardless of the team that you have, that is your team. And you are spending your time and attention working with that team. Mm-hmm. And when I think when we look back on our lives, we're going to care not only about how successful we were, how much money we made, what we accomplished, but also the time we spent and who we did it with. And you want to come to terms with the fact that Every day you are working with that particular team, with those particular people, with the goal of helping each other get better. And that's a beautiful thing, right? And just as a concept, teams are a beautiful thing, right? Most, a lot of people operate in the world doing things solo, and that has its advantages too. But I mean, there are real benefits to teams that not everybody has access to. And so that's, I mean, that's just worth the gratitude there, you know, as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, so let me pivot now to meditation, which I think there's some, you can connect some dots there, but meditation, that was my new 2021 New Year's resolution. And it came off the back of one, just being interested in that and being mindful. But two was I was, I was experiencing really bad anxiety at the time, bad generalized anxiety where I would go through these waves where I like genuinely didn't feel like myself where I felt like I was almost, I was almost taking a back seat of my own life. And during these, there, they would come in waves and in, a wave could be anywhere from like seven to 14 days. And during those experiences, I felt I had trouble listening. I had trouble being eloquent and talking about the things I was trying to say. Word retrieval was really difficult. And I became sensitive to things like even caffeine would, would impact the anxiety and alcohol and and things like that. And it was really a frustrating and difficult experience to go through those waves of, of anxiety because I just didn't feel like myself. And it was, it was exacerbated because I was in a sales job. So I'm like, okay, now, 
not only do I have to experience this anxiety, I have to like pretend I don't have it to try and get this person to spend money. And, you know, it's difficult to be persuasive when you're anxious, right? It's, it's difficult enough to just be yourself when you're anxious. It's a totally different level when you're trying to like have to like interact with this other person and like try like like the, the back and forth of it and the social grace involved with it just all became very foreign when I was going through these bouts of anxiety. And I was like, I got, I have to solve for this, which I think does go back to self-love. I think when you're in the face of challenges, you don't want to, you, you don't want to just recognize the problem that you have. You also want to work on solutions. And so that's what I did in 2021. My new year's resolution was to meditate. And originally I was using, and, and still am, but only on occasion using an app where it was about 20 minutes a day. There was an intro course involved and I did it. I've been doing it every day since the start of 2021. So I'm going on about two and a half years of meditating every single day with the exception of maybe three or four days. And for me, the meditation journey has come in many different waves. So in the first wave, there was just this acknowledgement that I am constantly thinking and I'm thinking without even noticing the fact that I'm thinking. And it's weird this there's a strange duality involved where you are doing, you're involved in some sort of task or you're doing something, but the back of your mind is thinking about something else. And Sam Harris, I'll give Sam Harris is the creator of the app that I use waking up, but he has a really good example around this where he does this when he's public speaking, you might be listening to this podcast, but you're probably thinking about something else, right? Like what, what did I have for, what, what should I have for lunch today? Or did I forget my phone in the car? I couldn't, I could have sworn I, right. It's a, but it's so strange that the human mind can do that. You can be listening to me, whatever amount percentage you're, you're paying attention to this, but you're also in the back of your mind thinking about something else. For good or for bad, that's the first thing I noticed was that just the fact that that happens. And to me, I thought that was fascinating. And I what I recognized was that I'm just not being fully present in my life, where even when I'm spending time with good friends and family or working on an important project, I wasn't giving it my full attention. And therefore I, I was doing a disservice to those things. And so from there, it helped me realize that being present is, if not one of the most important things, the most important thing, because all you really have is your ability to pay attention at any given time. You know, like people say that time is the most important resource. I would say right up there with time is attention your ability to, I mean, wh whatever you're paying attention to right now is literally your life. And I had felt like that was being fragmented by thoughts that were just roaming around in the background. And so the, the first step of the meditation experience was just recognizing that that was going on and just being accepting of that. And I think this plays to one of the, the comments you made around, it's not just allowing positive thoughts and rejecting negative thoughts. It's just the, the observation that you are thinking. And then you can notice the thought and you can watch it go away. And it's part of this broader experience of consciousness, right? In the same way that you can feel the table in front of you, in the same way that, you know, you can feel your face with your hands, in the same way that you can hear the birds chirping, so too can you notice thoughts. And in fact, those thoughts are appearing in the same space as all of these other objects of meditation. So that was the first wave. And then the second wave was when the thoughts would actually stop. And once you do this enough where you a thought arises and you notice that the thought arises and you can even do some reflection about it. Like, so, you know, shoot, I didn't, you know, complete that deadline this morning. Okay. Why did that thought come up? Because I didn't complete the deadline because I should complete the deadline, 
because I care about my job, because my job gives me fulfillment. My job gives me fulfillment and allows me to be financially free. Okay. That's why the thought came up. Now watch the thought go away. And you can just keep doing that exercise until eventually no more thoughts are going to come up. And that I think is where true psychological freedom comes from is this just pure acknowledgement of all of this stimuli that is out of your control and you can sit in that and be free. So that was the second phase. And I'll, and then there's this third phase, which is a little bit more, it almost sounds a little bit more metaphysical, but the third phase is you notice that you're not controlling any of this. And in fact, there is no concept of the self, right? That you feel like you're the rider up here, but in fact, everything is just appearing in this open space. And so, I mean, we could talk more about that. That's a little bit different, but I think the first two is, is parts that will resonate more. Yeah. I mean, I'm all for going all the way there on this podcast. So that we, we never need to hold anything back. I'm, I'm down to get into the metaphysical, but yeah, man, that's a, I don't think I've ever done a deep dive into Sam Harris's work, but I've listened to him on podcasts before and uh, I am familiar with his work and, and he is an absolute student and teacher of consciousness. And I'm, I'm just wondering we can get into the metaphysical, but a lot of times the barrier into entry for meditation is that it just kind of sucks in the beginning. It's really hard. And a lot of times if we have been overthinking, it's meditation is exactly the thing we need, but it's also the hardest thing to do. Meaning sitting still and just allowing all the thoughts that maybe you're trying to bury or avoid and just allowing them to be there can actually cause pain, not just psychic pain, but even sometimes physical pain. I'm wondering if there was a certain amount of time in the beginning that it took to adjust to it or, or if maybe you had laid enough groundwork in other areas that you just took to it pretty quickly. Like what, what was the journey like for you in terms of January 1st, 2021, I'm meditating three weeks in, it started to feel like I was making progress. So what was it like for you? Well, I think I have trouble giving advice for people who just blindly want to get into meditation. And I don't mean blindly in that they don't have any reason for it, but they, they heard it could be good for relieving anxiety or helping with stress or helping with their negative thoughts. And so they figured they'd give it a try. For me, it was really difficult anxiety. It almost it felt like I was at my wits end in a way. Like I was trying everything I could to relieve the anxiety that was I was experiencing. Like I would go through times where I wouldn't drink or do other things or... I tried being very social and always going out as a way to relieve it. I tried being a hermit and never going out to try and relieve it. I tried changing up my diet. I tried different types of exercises. And it just felt like nothing I would do would help me overcome this anxiety. And when I came to grips with the fact that, well, maybe it's just the way I'm actually thinking about the anxiety, that's when I got into it. But it was it was coming off the back of this, essentially suffering was what pushed me into that. I, I felt like I had no other choice. So put differently, I don't know how I would have gotten into it if, if it was any less severe than that, because mm. there's a lot of research on this. Tons of people love trying meditation. And then after around the three month, three to five month mark, they drop off. And I don't fully know what to make of that. I, I think it's difficult for people to, it, it's, it takes a long time. Like even after 90 days, you could feel like you've made no progress. But I guess the one thing I'll say is the particular app that I used, which is Waking Up by Sam Harris, is particularly good, which is, is not a sponsor, but it could be one day. No, because <laughs> uh, there, there's this whole intro course involved. So 
it's like day one, you you listen to this pot, this one, and then day two, you listen to this session, day three, as opposed to, I think some of the other apps, you just, now you're just in it and you got to, but it's very, Sam is very mindful about the steps that he is, the steps that he's taking you on and, and not to introduce some of the advanced concepts early on. So I think the, the ramp up is a lot better on that particular app than some of the other competitor apps that are out there. So that's the main thing to say about it. But the second thing is, I think it's important to change what you want out of it. So if you're trying to get into meditation, you want to change what you want out of it. And you want to change it from, think about the reason that you're going into meditation and then now just drop all expectation that that's actually going to work. Because meditation actually isn't meant to do anything, right? It's actually just meant to help you acknowledge things that are already there. And it didn't, I mean, mindful, like meditation didn't help me necessarily relieve my anxiety. Meditation helped me recognize what my anxiety was from a physiological perspective so that I could better notice it and come to peace with it. And by coming to peace with it, it was relieved. So it's almost this indirect method of achieving some of those goals of uh, inner peace. Yeah, that's so important, man. That's exactly what it is. It's it's not this blissful state that you're you're seeking. It's actually just making space for what's already happening inside of you. And what happens when we make space for what's already happening inside of us is that we can feel it to completion or think it to completion. And then that's what you're talking about. I have the thought. Let's trace where the thought roots from. Okay, this this is pointing me to work is really fulfilling, and that's why I'm feeling really anxious. And with enough practice over time, I don't know exactly how long it takes, but with enough practice, you can start to get more depth at creating these states where the thoughts really do quiet down, and you're really just tapped into that feeling of possibility or abundance or you know whatever you want to call it, feeling one with the universe. Hmm. So I I think it's it's a really beautiful invitation for folks to really what I'm hearing is let go of the the control that you think you have with meditation and just sit still with some kind of guidance for 10, 15, 20 minutes a day. And if you're patient enough, then the results really start to happen over time. Exactly. Yeah. I'll add two things there. One is it's it's not as much the helping you feel as though there's things that you're just noticing. It's the it's noticing the reality that you actually don't have any control over what's going on in your environment, right? Anything that you see or hear or touch or feel or think just appears, right? There is no evidence that any of these things are in your control. And it's easy to just do a quick experiment on that, right? Which is no, here, listen to something going on in the room and now stop listening to it, right? And you can't do it right? Because you, again, you're just noticing it. And it's the same thing with a thought, for example, right? What are you going, like, there's a good, there's always this good question in meditation, which is what are you going to think next, right? You have no idea what you're going to think next, right? And so that right there is proof that thoughts just arise, but they feel like we think them. And (laughs) the more you can separate yourself from the thoughts that arise, the more that will yield psychological freedom, because then you don't become your thoughts, right? And you can you can adjust and alter the relationship that you have with them. And this is really good for, back to our previous conversation, our previous topic around love and self-love and self-forgiveness and uh, fear of failure, which is 
thoughts don't thoughts have meaning to the insofar as you give them meaning. So if you're telling yourself that, well, I didn't do a good enough job, I, I must be a failure. That isn't what that isn't you, right? That is that is a thought that just arose for reasons that you can give recognition to, right? Maybe that thought arose because you think you're a failure because this has happened a few times, but there's many more times that you'll get to try and be successful and you're hard on yourself, right? Maybe your parents were hard on you and now you're hard on yourself and that's what you've learned your whole life. So thoughts come from not necessarily what you're just thinking in the moment as you, you are conditioned as this person from a, a long history of genetics and life experiences that are yielding these thoughts in every moment. And people who are people who meditate to a degree have changed and altered the relationship that they have with their thoughts such that they can equip themselves to form a relationship where they can continue to build themselves up and not get bogged down and so invested in every thought that arises. Well, there's at least a couple more things that I want to make sure that we fit into this conversation. I, I know that we've been jamming for a little bit, and there's there's a few things that I'm I'm really drawn to that we haven't really we've started to press on them a little bit, but I want to do a deeper dive on. And and one of them is just around what creates strong cultures. I I know that you read a book called The Culture Code. I think it's by Dan Coyle, and there are three factors in that book that point to how regardless of the industry that the organization or business is operating in that leads to strong cultures. Could you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. Well, I'll say that you want, you want in, in a professional setting, you want to build a strong culture and maybe actually just to bounce quickly back to you. Should we talk in terms of like professional settings or just culture in general? I'm here for whichever way you want to go. Okay. I think that they, they're they're largely intertwined anyway, but I mean, I and I never read the culture code, but my guess is that it's talking more about professional settings. Is that right? Typically, and it I guess it depends on what professional setting. But yeah, it, it, like an example is a basketball team. Mm -hmm. The basketball team is an example, and I believe the CIA even is an example. So anyway, just just teams in general. And he talks about these three core components around safety, vulnerability, and purpose. And so we've talked about safety a little bit, people feeling like they can be themselves and they can confront you if they need. And I just want to add why culture is so important. I think oftentimes too, this is sometimes a misconception where in any business, there is the culture and then there is the business side. And it's almost, there's two different facets of leadership in any organization. There's the people leadership and there's the business leadership. The people leadership is how well can you inspire and help people collaborate and empower them and bring them together and help them achieve their goals. The business side is how can you meet your company KPIs and whatever key objectives that the company is asking you as a leader to fulfill that they're using to evaluate your success. Now, oftentimes leaders confuse which ones to prioritize first, right? Oftentimes leaders will choose to prioritize the business side of things as a priority. And then they say to themselves that the people in the culture piece will follow. And it makes sense on paper because that's what the company is asking for. If you're not meeting the KPIs and key company objectives, then soon you'll be at a different company. So obviously it would be easy to think that you want to focus on those more. In reality, you want to prioritize the people side. And the reason for that 
is twofold. One is you're not the one actually doing any of the work. So if you're not building them up and help helping build and cultivate the right team setting, then they're not even going to be able to fulfill the company objectives and KPIs. And the second one is the KPIs in many ways will follow if you can inspire people to want to work for you and to create a, an environment where the job is fulfilling. And it's also a good differentiation between like short-term and long-term strategy. It's actually a pretty decent short-term strategy to focus solely on the KPIs and objectives and then focus a little bit on the company culture at a later date. But in the long run, from a retention standpoint, from a job fulfillment standpoint, you want to create teams that want to be there and want to work for you and feel like they are becoming better versions of themselves as a result of coming into work every day. That is a much better long-term strategy to prioritize that. And so just to set that foundation, we talked about safety. The second one is vulnerability, which is this idea that you want to create an environment where people are willing to be open about insecurities and things that they aren't necessarily good at. And one of the key strategies that it talks about in the book is you want to lead by example when it comes to vulnerability. So oftentimes leaders will think of themselves as, well, I have to have all the right answers. And you know, if I show any signs of weakness, then they, could, they may just take advantage of that. But in reality, you want to be the one who leads with some of the things that you're not good at and just be like, hey, everyone, I'm human. And like, all, you know, it's a company run by human beings and I'm a human being. And like everybody else, there's things that I'm good at and there's things that I'm not good at. And so I always recommend to managers, one of your first meetings that you should have with your team is a slideshow where you're outlining a list of things that you're particularly good at and a list of things that you're actually working on as a person. And this allows people to really recognize that you have a growth mindset and that you can be empathetic when an employee might be approaching you with things that they're trying to work on. Because the reason that this is also so critical is you can't you can't just be a rock because then you'll never actually understand what employees need to be successful. They're going to hide it from you. Because if you mm -hmm. if you don't create a space where they're willing to come up to you and be like, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I actually, you know, I'm really good at these things, but I just, I can't seem to wrap my head around, you know, how to organize these spreadsheets, right? If they don't feel comfortable doing that, you will never know that they're not good at that. Right. And you won't understand the nuances of why they aren't good at that in the first place. And so you have to be open about things you're not good at because they will mirror that. And then you can work with them on the actual things that are preventing them from being successful. And then the third one is purpose, which is this idea that we talked about earlier, too, where you want them, everybody focused on a common goal. And that's by definition what leadership is. Leadership is influencing a group of people towards a common goal or vision. So by definition, but purpose is huge too, because again, it's not just the day-to-day -day of the job and achieving what the company wants to do and what will help them be successful. It's also this idea of upskilling and developing people and helping them recognize that the work that they're doing is going beyond their day-to-day. -day. It's also helping the greater organization achieve their company mission, but then it's also helping them as use this position as a stepping stone if they want it, to fulfill and become better at certain things in their life later down the line. And those three things are things that I've been laser focused on with my directors. Those are things that I'm instilling in each of my managers to ensure that they're cultivating teams that check off all three of those boxes. And to me, that's the best long-term strategy, which is utilizing those three, cultivating that space, and then and only then focusing on 
the business side of things and they'll be damn good at it if you do the first part the right way. Hmm. A lot of what you're saying reminds me of the book Drive by Dan Pink. I, I don't know if you've read it or are familiar with it, but hmm. there's, I mean, one of the things that I took away from the book is that they call it carrot. He calls it carrots and sticks, which to me is money or extrinsic motivators, extrinsic rewards. They're, they're really good in the short term, like you were saying, and they're really good at helping people who are doing very repeatable not very creative tasks do the job better and more efficiently, but they become not as useful when more creativity is needed. And there's this really powerful illustration and example in the book where I forget the number of participants, we'll call it 100 participants, are asked to take a box of matches and hang them. It's like a candle, a box of matches, and the box, and they need to hang all of them on the wall. They're not given a hammer or nails or anything like that. And the, there's a diminishing return, actually, when people are told extrinsically about, like, you will get this much more money if you do this job. There was, there, I think there was actually a negative impact. I could be totally misquoting this, but I think the, the point still stands true. When people were in touch with their intrinsic motivations, their autonomy, their, uh, their freedom, I forget exactly, I think purpose is one of them in the book, too then they are more able to do creative tasks well. And that is, that's ultimately what differentiates a company anyway. It's not being able to do the repeatable tasks really well, which money can help motivate. Motivation really comes intrinsically. And when people are intrinsically motivated, they are way more capable of innovating and creating and doing all the things that actually advance the business, which is what you're speaking to. If we take care of the people and understand what drives people, and not focus so much on the results that needs to happen and people just as a mechanism to achieve the results, then everything ends up being better anyway. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it, interestingly, just to connect those, people usually think that this is, you you have to sacrifice the focus on, on the business side to achieve this when in reality, it, it is identical to focusing on, on the business side of things, right? You by helping people become in intrinsically motivated, they will do the best possible job that they can do. And then all of the numbers and all of the objectives and OKRs are going to look good. And it doesn't always, the problem too, is that it, the, you can't, you don't launch the ship right away. Like it's not, you're not getting to the moon as fast as mm -hmm. if you're just, we have to complete the, we have to be amazing at these four or five things, get there. That'll get you there pretty quickly. And, you know, you, that also yields more burnout, which is a, is a whole other thing. And there's strategies around burnout. It also helps prevent burnout when you're helping employees become intrinsically motivated. And also they will more consistently be more successful for themselves and for the team in the long run. Hmm. Well, this is probably not exactly related to what we are just speaking about, but I it's come up a couple of times and they're such important topics and success by no stretch of the imagination guarantees fulfillment and happiness. And I think it's really important to understand what actually drives fulfillment and happiness. And you're, you're a student of both. And I would love to spend at least most of the remaining of the conversation going through what constitutes fulfillment and, and happiness for you and, and your studies of it. What are, what are some, general guidelines you've seen for, you know, what, what actually makes a fulfilling and happy human life? Yeah. 
Wow. I'd love to, if it's possible, could I bounce this back to you? I would love to hear your, some of your thoughts on this as somebody who's been on this journey. And I know you've talked to a lot of guests about this particular topic and obviously you're going through a big moment in your life, becoming a father. So, I mean, has this, has this journey changed for you in the last 30 days or so? And and how so? Hmm. There's, there's multiple questions in there. Yes, it has changed in the last 30 days, but in, in general, I think fulfillment and happiness, it constitutes of a lot of things. One is what are some things that bring me joy in my life? This is something that but my my child right now, he's not old enough to be exploring with things that bring him joy. But I, I imagine in the very near future, I am going to see lots of simple things that bring him lots of joy. And in my journey, I've focused a lot on, I've just put so much emphasis on professional success as being the driver of my fulfillment. And that is just so empty and missing so many other dimensions. I Like happiness and fulfillment are in my estimation, can be 20-legged stools. There's just so many things. So one is joy, or maybe you could call it play. Just things that you do that are meaningful to you, or that I do that are meaningful to me, that regardless of the outcome of the thing, they just bring me joy, that I I love doing them. In, in terms of professional work, there's being of service to other people, being part of something that is bigger than yourself. I think in, in my life, I've been really focusing more on spirituality and my inherent interconnectedness. Like COVID has really highlighted the fact that we are so interconnected and that my own fulfillment and happiness in isolation is kind of a myth. It doesn't really exist. Hmm. And so if I'm only focusing on myself, this is something that has certainly shifted in the last 30 days. If I'm only focusing on myself, that is again, missing a, a large component of what makes a really full, fulfilling life. Connection and relationships are crucial. Those are maybe some of the most important aspects of it. So being connected with people that I admire, feel safe with, look up to, can really be myself with. And then I think there's some really basic stuff like loving myself, connecting with myself, understanding what matters to me and acting on what matters to me. And there's, there's a level of improvement, like being excellent at things that are meaningful to me and developing skills is, is something that brings happiness and fulfillment. Looking at challenges as, or obstacles as teachers in my life and, and being able to see everything as being a benevolent force that's here to help me and support my growth in some way. Being committed to growth brings me lots of fulfillment enjoying process over results. And then, you know, being connected to the earth, being connected to nature, eating well, exercising, all these things that contribute to my well-being, those are much more important, even though I know, as I say this, that my life isn't completely aligned and I'm really working on this constantly, that I do spend a lot of my time trying to achieve professional success. And, and I know that that can be hollow, but the conditioning is so deep that it's just this constant looking on learning, focusing on it. And anyway, those are, those are some thoughts about what fulfillment and happiness look like to me. Hmm. Nice. Thanks for sharing those. Yeah. The, the last one was interesting in that, yeah, there's this, there's this tug and pull where, you know, we want happiness to be all this, this whole inner peace concept, but some things were just conditioned so hard to want. 
And whether it's that we're evolutionarily wired that way, or, you know, we had some family member who was just so adamant that we should pursue a certain direction in our lives that we just can't help but feel that we're not fully successful if we don't achieve that thing. And in some cases, I think that's fine. Like, I think we should, everybody should have one thing that they kind of obsess over that they they want to do in their life. And I just think the key is not having too many of those things. Mm-hmm. So you can have one thing that you really obsess over. So for you, it, it sounds like a few things, but the one you just mentioned is around professional success. And, you know, I share that as well. I want to feel fulfilled in my professional career and inspire and influence a large number of people and continue to be a leader to, to those around me. And the, but the challenge is you don't want to have too many of these desires, right? And this goes back to old Buddhist wisdom around, you know, desire is suffering. But I think it's good to just obsess over one really big one and let all the other small ones go. And there's also a really good quote. It's not peace of mind. It's peace from mind. And it goes back to this idea of being very mindful. And a lot of times happiness doesn't necessarily come from the things that you achieve. It comes from your ability to have gratitude in any given moment and to truly be Mm -hmm. in the moment. And yeah, there's a little bit of a, a paradox there between that and wanting to achieve something but i mean we're hardwired to achieve things we're we're human beings we've gone through evolution and we tend to compare ourselves to others who have achieved things and maybe we want that too there's some things that are hard to undo but also you want to you want to recognize that for yourself like what are the things that help you be fulfilled is it to be financially free is it to retire early is it to start a family is it to travel a lot pick your thing obsess over that thing and then do the things that need to be done to get there. And the journey of getting there, I think, can be broken down in a couple of ways too. The first one is you want to create what I call artificial suffering, which is that you want to often do things that tend to be a little bit more challenging. And you know, I read this somewhere that if you're deciding between two things to do in the future, choose the one that's harder to that's more difficult in the short term. So an example of this might be, I want to, you know, I'm, I'm debating whether you know, the weekend's coming up. I'm debating whether I want to go to the gym before I go to dinner, or if I want to just, you know, watch, watch a movie and eat junk food. And, you know, both are great. Like both are probably good. Like, you know, eating the junk food will make me feel relaxed. And like, I'm, you know, I'm in my comfort zone and one of them is going to the gym. You typically want to choose the one that's harder. And so going to the gym in that case and always doing things so back to artificial suffering. So that could be in the form of exercise and like physical suffering. In that case, it could be in the form of things that maybe you feel like you're inferior to others as a result of having that. So it could be like, you're not as good at socializing or public speaking. Maybe you want to sign up for a Toastmasters, or maybe you want to sign up for a running club on a Sunday where you have to talk to all these people. And then, so oftentimes putting yourself in situations where you're suffering artificially will help you be more resilient in the long run. Because whether we like it or not, there's going to be things in our lives where we're going to have to be resilient, right? Even if life is amazing right now, unfortunately, there are circumstances that come up, whether it could be the health of other people in your life or certain circumstances financially, you're going to go through tough times. And you want to be able to build yourself up to a point where when you're going through those challenges, you're able to be more resilient and and be there not only for yourself, but the people around you who may be going through those too. And so the journey to happiness and fulfillment is conversely or contradictorily filled with moments of real challenge and struggle, right? It's yeah. not, it's not this easy way. And 
I think that is different from, I mean, I think there's short-term happiness and there's long-term happiness probably. Like short-term happiness are like these moments that we get where things are great, right? Like maybe you're maybe you're eating popcorn and it's like the butter on the popcorn is so good. And now you're like that, that moment is just so nice. But now you're in two minutes, you're done with the popcorn. And those are fine, but ultimately what we want to strive for is the long-term happiness and this idea of feeling fulfilled and peace for mind. And in order to achieve that, you want to go through things that really challenge yourself and digging deep and being introspective about what might be holding you back from that. And then putting yourself out there and going out of your comfort zone and trying new things and failing and being awkward and all of the things that come with that journey, right? But you got to take the first step. Yeah. Well, so, something I want to say about, I, I want to share about gratitude and artificial suffering. And with, with gratitude, that is definitely one of the major underpinnings of happiness is that when you want what you already have and can really celebrate who you are, where you are, what you have, all of that, that is that seems to be one of the core staples of happiness. In, in a lot of people that I've studied, it's a gratitude practice. And, and there's the, the paradox again of, well, if I'm really grateful with where I am, doesn't, isn't that going to hold me back from obtaining more? And I actually think that it paradoxically has the opposite effect. When, when you feel really okay with where you are, there's it, coming from this place of abundance, you actually can go get more, but you also are not attached to wanting more, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So gratitude is a huge one for me too. I'm really glad you brought that in. And with artificial suffering, it sounds like cho- choosing the hard thing and knowing that the hard thing is in service of the greater good, right? It's, it's not just doing a hard thing for the sake of, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, gonna to go scrape my knee as hard as possible because I, it's going to make me tougher person. It's, yeah, exercise is good for my health. Health matters to me. I'm going to go do that hard thing, even though it's, I don't like it as much. It's not going to feel initially as comfortable as sitting down and enjoying a movie and having some junk food. So I wanted to, I know that that was the come from and what you were saying, but I, I wanted to explicitly make it clear is what I'm not, I'm not hearing that you were saying, just go do a hard thing for the sake of it. But if it's in service of something that is helping you become better, that you know is helping you become better, that's a powerful combo. Well, I think people have a, a deep, deep down, they have a pretty good instinct of what's holding yes. them back, you know, and the fact like that that is the journey is how do you break through that right and sometimes it feels impossible like you know you need to go out there and so i'll just use the example of maybe you're you're feeling isolated and you know the key to happiness is like building a community or a network around you and so you want to sign up for all these different clubs but now you're just home and you're watching a movie right and you just feel like you can't get up um that's the journey how how do you get how do you get off of the couch and out the door somehow, you know, and, and then there's strategies around that, right? Like one of the, one of the strategies there could be like incrementalism. I don't know the actual word for it, but I think that fits where just do something small and make some progress every day. So like if you have social anxiety and you're, you're trying to get, you know, socialize with people, maybe the first day you just walk out the door and you, you ask someone what time it is, and then you go back up and, and you go back on the couch. And then the next day, you, know, you drive to a convenience store and you have a two minute conversation with the clerk. And then the third day you sign up for something and then you go for 30 minutes and then you leave. And then the fourth day you sign up for something and then you stay for the whole thing. And then the fifth day 
you go to the thing and then you get somebody's number and then now you have a friend that you can meet up with on the weekend. So doing just research on different strategies to help ensure that you can actually make progress from point A to point B, I think is critical. Mm. Well, Ross, is is there anything that we haven't spoken about so far today that you would like to speak about now, bring into the conversation? And if not, I, I just have a few more questions for you. Well, I've, I've been personally in just something that's been top of mind recently is this idea of a reverse bucket list. Have you ever heard of that? Go for it. I, I don't think I have. Yeah, I was. I think I was reading about this where this was absolutely fascinating and I think ties into our conversation around desires, which is that you don't want to have too many desires and too many wants. And I think that's a course to being unhappy, not to say that you shouldn't have a couple big ones that you that you want. But the reverse bucket list is not writing down a bunch of things that you want to do in the future. And actually there's been talks about like want that, that just adds to things you want, right? You want to travel to this place and do that thing and accomplish that. And again, there's a time and place for that. And it's good to want things, but having too many can, can impede your ability to actually feel fulfilled and happy. And the reverse bucket list is actually a list of things that you want to stop wanting. And so one of the things that I've been experimenting with recently is uh, cold showers. And so one that's linked to a ton of really good research around health that I'm not the expert in, so I won't go into, but essentially the warm showers are great and you, you know, but it's a desire and cold showers are much better for you. So first of all, it's just beneficial to do it. But what I've been practicing is just waking up in the morning and turning on the shower and whatever the temperature is, I just walk in right away. And this ties in well with mindfulness too, because nothing bad is going to happen if you walk into a cold shower, right? You're going to shiver for a couple seconds and think to yourself, this is brutal, but it's not going to kill you and it's not going to injure you. And it's going to be, feel like physical suffering for a couple seconds. And in some cases it is, but that is a perfect experiment to run. You, It's one less thing that you're going to need in the future and it's linked to health benefits. And it'll probably save you some time in the day waiting for it to get warm. And obviously just a, a pretty simple example there, but always finding small things that you realize that you want in your day and slowly and surely eliminating those. And that'll allow you to focus more exclusively on the things that you know are important in your life. I love that, man. And as as someone who does cold showers every morning, that uh, makes me feel good. In some ways, I've already backed into a, a tiny reverse bucket list. So I, I love that concept. And yeah, I, I just have a couple more questions that I typically ask at the back end of the interviews that would, would love to pick your brain on. And you started to speak about how, as a leader, you model where you are, these weren't the words that you use, but essentially where you're unfinished, where you're working on an edge, you're working on some area of yourself. And so what's an area that you're really focused on right now in terms of your own improvement and development? Yeah. Well, the big thing for me is the is emotional leadership. That's always a journey that I've been on where you know, you have leaders that can be very emphatic and can very be very versatile in terms of how they're addressing a room or how they're presenting themselves. And for me, I've always felt pretty siloed in terms of the tone I'm using and how I'm coming across. And uh, some feedback that people have given to me in, in my past is that I can be monotone or uh, like I can't change my inflection as well as some other people. And that can be impeding if I'm trying to get across a, an important point or I'm trying to empathize with somebody who's going through a tough time. And I've gotten much better at it. 
and something that I'm always focused on. And so I've been reading about that quite a bit as well. And just, you know, you want to, I want to be a leader where anybody feels like they can come to me if they're struggling with something or they want advice on something. And I think we can create a space where like the goals are important and being successful in the role is important, but also the human connection that we're all at the end of the day, spending our time together doing this and trying to ensure each other's success. And, you know, I have to be the one setting that tone. And I don't know if I always do that. So I'm, mm. I'm certainly working on that. Beautiful, man. Well, thank you for sharing. Thanks for all the shares that you've had in this episode. It's It's been really meaningful for me. Yeah. What's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Walks. I would say, I mean, after Andrew Huberman's suggestion around, you know, taking walks for I've started walking a lot more. I went to DC a couple of weeks ago and with my girlfriend and we walked around. I mean, we, we would spend like, we walked like eight miles a day around downtown and walked around the museums and walked around Georgetown, a uh, beautiful city, by the way, but walked around there a ton. And just recognizing that w- one thing that I was talking to my girlfriend, Madison, about this. And one thing we observed was our conversation quality actually changes when we're on the walk. And you know, like, we'll be we'll be uh, relaxing at one of our apartments and, you know, the conversation is fine. Like there's nothing particular about it. And, but the second we start going on a walk, all of a sudden we're talking about the psychology of, you know, why we do certain things throughout the day and some sort of work dynamic or some thing that she's working on or I'm working on to help feel more, more fulfilled day to day. And, and it's just, it's one of those, like you can have your cake and eat it too, because you're outside and you're getting exercise and you're around other people and you're engaging in good dialogue. And it's just a win-win all around. And speaking of time and attention, I mean, it's just a great use of time and attention. And for those who meditate, it's actually a really walking meditation. is a really good strategy because it's a totally different experience. And for some people, it actually allows them to be more mindful because the environment in front of you is constantly changing. I think sometimes when it can be really stagnant, if you're just sitting in a room and it's stagnant, it can be easier to have thoughts arise or more thoughts might arise and more distractions because there's less stimuli going on. But when you're walking, there's a lot more in your physical environment that you can focus on. So you can focus on your knees that are bending. You can focus on your feet that are moving. You can focus on the fact that things that were once far away are slowly getting closer over time. And then you can just sort of notice all those things and recognize that you're not in control of any of that. And so it could really put you in a really peaceful place when you are mindful and, and you're going for those walks. So a little bit more than what you were asking for there, but that's why walks I think are, have been really big for me. Yeah, it, it's awesome, man. Walks have been really big for me too. And it, it's reminding me, I think it was Steve Jobs who famously took a lot of his important calls on walks because we, there's just something that happens in our brain when we're outside, we're getting sunlight, we're moving around that the synapses in our brain are firing in a different way. And we have more interesting conversations, better insights. So that's a, it's a, it's a cool thing to share with the audience. When you hear the word success, who is the first person that comes to mind? I would say my mom, Hmm. because she, you know, like me had, had her challenges and uh, I think really found herself in her life. And I think part of my own journey of finding understanding who I am and learning what I need 
in my day-to-day and in my life to feel like the best version of myself and to do the things I want to do came from her strong desire and ambition to find that in her own life too. And I think watching her lead by example in that way was very inspiring. Hmm. A shout out to Mrs. Shinnick. She's yeah. uh, clearly, she, she raised a good boy and, and she's had a really strong impact on your life. So two more, two more easy questions. Well, one's an easy one. One's probably not so easy. Where can folks connect with you? I know there's, you have a LinkedIn. Is that, is that really where you'd invite folks to connect with you? Yeah. LinkedIn's the best way. Okay. And then the final question that I ask in every interview, this is not easy. So I don't know why I said it was easy, but the podcast is called Mike Search for Meaning. And I would love to hear in your words, what it means to live a meaningful life. To live a meaningful life is to recognize all of the amazing things that you already have and to give more of your time and attention to recognizing those things. And further, being more conscious and aware of areas in your life that are detracting from you and what's important in your life and understanding the power of saying no to things and the power of understanding the tectonic plates that are priorities and recognizing that what may have once been a priority may no longer. And to consistently put yourself first in a way that paradoxically will help other people too. Recognizing that you don't need to set other, you don't need to set yourself on fire to keep other people warm and understanding that being laser focused on what will help you in your life, recognizing that you are worthy and deserving of meeting and achieving those things in your life. And then recognizing that by doing those things, the people who love you and care for you will also lead a better life knowing that you have done all the great things for yourself. And I think all of that stems from this continued journey around being present in each moment, recognizing that the future and the past, anytime those, anytime that you are thinking about those things, it's always just a moment in the present that those thoughts are arising. And creating a relationship with you and your thoughts such that that you are aligned with what you know is right for you and being able to put all of those other distractions aside. Hmm. Well, Ross, thank you for being present here with me for the last two hours or so. There's been many quotables, lots of downloads of insight in this episode. I just appreciate the student that you are of yourself and of human behavior your team at Indeed is is very fortunate to have you. I, I think that that's probably something that they're grateful for in their life is that they have you organizing their team, creating psychological safety, really focused on how you can inspire what's best for them, focusing on the people and not just the business results that need to happen. And I'm really grateful that Jeremy connected us. We have so many different directions we could have continued to go in this, but you seem like a philosopher, a student of psychology, someone who's just deeply curious about what it means to be alive. And I certainly share that with you. It was so evident in this conversation. I really had a great time and just appreciate you being here with me. Yeah. And thank you. And shout out to you and shout out to Jeremy for connecting us. And I've been a fan of the podcast and your ability to actively listen and lead by example there 
to bring up really interesting conversations and also just do your due diligence and research. I think, you know, this conversation would have been nothing without, you know, the time and dedication that you put in. So I really appreciate it. Hmm. Thank you very much. And to everyone who is tuned in, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening. Take good care and lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.